If you have a Bible, would you please grab it? And would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? We are in a series during Advent within the Sermon on the Mount series on prayer. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he turns the page from all those bad deeds that we want to avoid in chapter 5 to those good deeds that often are many times in our life are the things that can be even more pernicious. What do I mean by that? Sometimes we can use our good deeds in very bad ways. And Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and the disciples what it means to be able to pray rightly. So if you would, would you give your attention to Emily now? And would you stand with me? Would you stand as we read God's word from Matthew chapter 6? And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Father, would you take your word and would you use it to change our hearts? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's something missing from the Lord's Prayer. There's something missing in the Lord's Prayer. Because when I pray, my prayers are often riddled with pronouns that I don't find in this prayer. What pronoun do you not see in the Lord's Prayer? A pronoun is like we or me or he or she or it. You never see the first person singular pronoun in this prayer, do you? You never see I or my or mine. And children, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, my prayers oftentimes have a whole lot of I and my and mine in them. And so do yours. But Jesus here is very intentional. He is trying to remind his disciples, as you pray, you are praying collectively, together. You are to pray like you are not alone. And Jesus shows us this in the first half by praying to our Father, his kingdom, his will, his glory. And then in the second table or the second half of the Lord's Prayer, it's always our, our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. Deliver us from our temptation. There was a, um, a poem that was on my refrigerator as a little boy that I saw every day growing up as I got something to eat or drink. And it says, Lord, help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I might live like thee. 
My mother knew I needed to read that every day growing up. <laughs> but my prayers are still so full of me and my and I. Jesus here shows us that when we come to pray for him, he takes care of our present, he takes care of our past, and he takes care of our future. And he does it because he's inviting us to pray like we're not alone. Listen, you see in the second half of the Lord's prayer these three very simple things. You see provision for the present, you see forgiveness for the past, and you see wisdom for the future. Provision for the present, forgiveness for the past, wisdom for the future. Now, would you lower your eyes? Let's look at those three things briefly together. First, you see provision for the past. Jesus says to pray for our daily bread. Jesus is telling us, listen, you are to pray for things that you need. We are not to just pray, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. It is not all about, all about the Lord's kingdom. Jesus says you can't really begin to pray just for the Lord's kingdom until you recognize that he knows you so well that he wants to provide even for those daily needs that you have. It is right and good to pray for God's kingdom and his will and his glory just as we saw last week. But Jesus also invites you to pray for the things that are most intimate to your hearts. And he frees us up as a community to pray that way. Martin Luther said that everything necessary for the, the preservation of this life, like food or a healthy body or good weather or house or home or a wife or kids or good government and peace, and that God may preserve us from all sorts of calamities and sickness and pestilence and hard times and war and revolutions and the like. All of this is contained in that small phrase, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. The Lord has a way of challenging you and me to depend upon him for the things we need for today. You want a good example? Listen. Many of the staff, many of the worship team, we are thinking about the service. We are thinking about, Lord, how are we gonna help lead God's people into your presence this morning? And you know what Jesus says? I'm gonna cause a two-year-old to set off the fire alarm this morning, and I'm gonna bring the fire trucks here so that you remember who's boss and who's the head of this church. Because as much as the staff may want to prepare, as much as I want to prepare for the message, the Lord has a way of reminding us, listen, I'm going to provide just what you need for today. Don't be thinking about the future. Recognize I'm going to provide all that you need. And he has. Bread costs money. And money requires work. And work requires ordered society. And an ordered society requires good government. Even fire stations to respond to fire alarms, and good business and good labor. All of these things are things that, for which we ought to be praying. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is this Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Has the Lord ever taken you and has he ever taken from you? Has he ever taken you to the brink and taken from you so that you would begin to remember that it is the Lord who provides your daily bread? Do you remember in Exodus just after Israel 
escaped from Pharaoh across the Red Sea. They've been delivered. They've been freed from the tyranny of Egypt. And what does the Lord do? He puts them smack dab in the wandering of the wilderness. And the Lord provides something for him. He provides food for him, doesn't, doesn't he? Provides food for them. And what does he call that food? Manna. What is it? Literally, they didn't know what it was. And the Lord said to them, I want you to collect manna for you and your families. But what stipulation did he put on the collection of that manna? He said, you shall collect all that you need for how long? For the month? For the year? For the week? You shall collect the food you need for today. And friends, I just want to remind you that Jesus knows exactly what you need. And we are to pray, Lord, would you provide for us our daily bread? Chrysostom, the fourth century golden-mouthed preacher of the early church, said that the request for physical necessities is a good and right request because we are not asking for luxurious homes or fancy clothing. We are asking for our daily bread. And this is a hard, um, it's a hard line of the Lord's Prayer for us to pray because none of you have to worry about your daily bread. And if you've ever had to worry about it, you never forget it. There are 2,000 people in Owasso, Oklahoma, at least, that's just what the statistics show, that literally do not know how they're going to eat at the end of the day. And when you travel to the third world and you come back to suburban life in Oklahoma and we enjoy all the luxuries we have from Reese's and Sprouts, it sticks with us a little bit to know that there are many people in our city who don't have very much. And so I'm going to ask a favor of you. Our church is growing to the size where we need to begin to think about how to use and leverage the gifts we have to help extend the reach of Christ's love to our city in creative and sustainable ways. And that does not mean that we need to remake the wheel. What it does mean is that we need to find those organizations that are already existing in Owasso and support them and be involved in their life and help make them better. You don't have to stamp Trinity on the sign. It doesn't matter. But would you pray? Would you pray? I'm not asking you to go to the food pantry or serve. You can do that if you'd like to. I'm just asking you something very simply. Would you please pray for the deacons and the elders and the members of our church to have a heart for the poor in our city. I long to have a heart for the poor in our city, but I cannot do it by myself. And I need you to begin to help me to pray that. Lord, would you provide the daily bread of the people in our city so that, Lord, give us this day our daily bread is not a collective sigh, okay, the Lord's Prayer. It is a yearning for those people in our own communities, some of them even on our streets who do not know how the Lord is going to provide for them by the end of the day. You think I'm kidding. I'm not. Some of your neighbors have overbought their house and are struggling to feed their families. Some of your neighbors, do you know who they are? Need us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and to collectively wear their yearning for provision. And Jesus says, through my church, I will help provide for you.
they formalized this in Acts chapter 6 when there were people in the church who, who, who were, were fighting over the food and there were widows who were being left out. And so what did, what did the Lord do? He said, I want you to call deacons. I want you to call servants. I want you to call men to help provide for the physical needs of the church. And as we grow, there's room in our church for more deacons. And some of you men who've been sitting on the sidelines, listen, you need to pray about whether or not you're called to be a deacon or not. I know you're afraid of commitment, but don't be. We need you to help. And in the months ahead, we're going to be calling deacon assistants to come alongside the deacons and help. And maybe for some of you, this will be a good on-ramp for you to one day be a good deacon, to get our hands into the community to help provide for the needs of Owasso and the surrounding area. The Lord doesn't only provide for us physically in this way. He doesn't only call us to pray for physical needs, but the Lord also means this spiritually as well. Augustine and Chrysostom and the early church fathers, whenever they interpreted the, Old, uh, the New Testament, they often did so spiritually, not literally. Augustine, for example, said that the Lord giving us our daily bread is him giving us the word of God for today. And that is true. Isaiah 55, which we heard earlier this morning, it says, come, all you who are thirsty, come. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Why do you spend your labor on that which is not bread? And eat that, that which does not satisfy. But listen to me, his word, and delight yourself in the richest affair. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Give us a reassuring sense of your love for us because, friends, he does love you. Oftentimes, you see the physical and the spiritual interwoven throughout Scripture. It's not always that you present the, physical, the, the spiritual first, even though we want to evangelize well and strategically. Sometimes you can't evangelize well until you fill someone's belly full of food. You know what that's like. You've seen that. Matthew, just earlier in this Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter five, he says, listen, go and first be reconciled to your brother. Reestablish connection physically with your brother, emotionally in that relationship, and then come present your offering to the Lord. Would you pray with me about how we can, out of the overflow of the gospel, begin to reach the city in very practical ways? The best food pantry in the world, the best food pantry in the history of Christ's church is his preached word. Because it motivates and it changes God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit to use their gifts in ways that only they can be used. Would you pray that for me? With me. Alongside us. He provides for the present. Secondly, he provides forgiveness for the past. When I was a young boy, I spent my summers at a camp called Camp Longhorn. I know that whenever a pastor mentions anything about Longhorns, it's a lot, he's liable to have his last Sunday at church in Oklahoma. But it was just a camp. It was in South Texas. And they would give you these little orange plastic coins with a Longhorn stamped on them. And they called them merits. And whenever you did something good at Camp Longhorn, you got a merit. And you, you had these little coins, but they had a little hole in them, and you tied them to your shoe. That's what all the guys did. You put them on your shoe, or you stuck them on your belt loop on a long laundry safety pin. 
At the end of the term, you would then go to the store and you would buy things with your merits. If you did something bad, you would have a demerit and you'd have to give up your merits to your counselors. It was a very, um, I don't know, practical, guilt-riddled way to help young campers learn how to obey. But I guarantee you, I said, yes, ma'am, after that camp, I never stopped saying it because they scared me to death into obedience. The Pharisees operated in a very similar way. The word that Jesus uses here for debts is the same word that the Pharisees use for demerits. Jesus takes this Greek term for debts that the Pharisees used all the time, and Jesus says, listen, Pharisees, are you listening to me? I'm talking to my brothers here, but I know you're hearing me. You pray, forgive us of our debts. Because every Pharisee knew that you needed to work out your demerits in order to get more demerits and then go to the store of God's love and you can purchase it with your good works. Remember, Jesus is teaching people here how to pray who are not prayerless people. Like the Lord's Prayer is being instructed to people who actually are overburdened by prayer. That's what the Pharisees did. They prayed all day. And Jesus is trying to help them see that I'm trying to reshape the way you understand the merit system in the kingdom. Because in the ancient Near East, nobody would go to someone who owed, who, to whom they owed a debt and say, would you forgive me? It was unspeakable. But here Jesus says, and would you pray, Father, forgive us of our debts. In Matthew chapter 18, there's a famous story about the parable where Jesus says there is a servant who owes his master 10,000 talents. Do you know what a talent is? A talent is 20 years wage. So here's a man who owes his master 10,000 units of 20 years wage. That's like equal to, you know, $6 billion today. 10,000 talents, and he goes and, and the master says, I forgive you of all of your debts to me, your 10,000 talents. And that servant, what does that servant do? That servant says, thank you so much. Oh, I have been so blessed. And then does he run and does he forgive everybody in that town, all those who owed him something? No, he goes to a man who owes him $100. And he grabs that guy by the scruff of the neck and he says, you better pay up, buddy. You better pay me what you owe me. And he's just been given, forgiven 10,000 talents. Jesus says, if you are to pray, Lord, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, you do so as you forgive others. This is not a condition, listen to me. It is not a condition of God forgiving you. It is a consequence. Please hear that. There are those who believe that if you do not forgive someone else, God will not forgive you. The language in Greek is that of a consequence, not of a condition. In other words, when you realize how much you've been forgiven, you do go and forgive others. But here's the question. Why do you have such a hard time forgiving others? the gospel may not be alive in your heart. For if you're not able to forgive others, to be generous to them, to be loving toward them, even though they have harmed you, friends, do you know the Lord Jesus? 
the fruit of knowing that you're forgiven is that you gladly and you freely forgive others. Because Jesus has forgiven you, not of 10,000 talents, but he has forgiven you of 10,000 lifetimes of sin. And he did so gladly. The early church father Chrysostom said that to ask forgiveness from God is a great benefit and then to deny the same to others is to mock him. There can be no serious prayer for forgiveness except from the lips of a forgiver. And sometimes, listen, as I got ready for the sermon this week, sometimes we struggle with forgiveness. We're good with other people, but do you know who we don't forgive? We have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Friends, guilt is a status. It is a status that you have before the Lord or before some legal entity. But shame is what you feel. And we're friends. I know you. And, some, and you know me. And some of us, listen, we have shame. And we cannot forgive ourselves very easily. Ed Welch describes shame like this. You feel like an outcast. You feel like you don't belong. You feel naked. You feel like everyone else around you is walking with their clothes on and you feel exposed and vulnerable. You are seen and what others see is not pretty. You feel unclean. Something is wrong with you. You are dirty. Even worse, you are contaminated. And there is a difference between being a little bit muddy and harboring a deadly, contagious disease. We don't have leprosy today. Thank goodness. We have shame. And it is just as disfiguring to your souls as leprosy was to the body in the ancient Near East. And there's an important difference between embarrassment and shame. Embarrassment wears off after that week. Embarrassment is an experience that you have that cuts you very deeply. It's temporarily shameful, but it's an experience that you share with many other people. And that experience, the pain of that fades after a week or sometimes even after a number of weeks, maybe even after years. But it does fade. Shame is different. Shame, just like we prayed in our confession of sin, it lodges in our hearts and it grows stronger in hidden places. You can never laugh off shame like you can laugh off an embarrassing moment. You may come to community group and they may ask you, so what is the most embarrassing moment as an icebreaker? We don't ask, what are you most shamed of? Because we can't laugh at it. C.S. Lewis writes this great little line in, in The Great Divorce where he says that, don't you remember on earth when things were too hot, they're in heaven, don't you remember on earth when things were too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right, like coffee or tea? He's British, he's thinking of tea. Shame is like that. If you will attempt it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But if you try to do anything else with it, you will be scalded. And the gospel says to us in the Lord's Prayer to forgive others. And you do that by forgiving yourself. And if you're wearing shame this morning, the way to drink that shame to the dregs is to take it before the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who knows exactly what you're ashamed of. And you know what? He knows a whole lot more than that. And he opens his arms to you and he says, come to me in your shame. Come to me in your dirtiness. Come to me in your brokenness because I'm here to make you clean. And though you feel like everybody's looking at you, you know what matters most? Your heavenly father looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus and he loves you and he sings over you. Many of you have a hard time forgiving others because you can't forgive yourself. Drink your shame to the dregs by confessing it before the one who bore your shame on the tree so that you might be free to enjoy the forgiveness that you have been granted. If you harbor that shame, if you say, Lord, I am too, I am just too dirty, I'm just too bad, you can never forgive me, you're making a mockery of God. Do you not know how much he loves you? He gives you provision for the present. He gives you forgiveness for the past. And lastly, he gives you wisdom for the future. He says, now lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we're left to ourselves, we tend to want to pray, Lord, give me guidance. Give me wisdom. Give me perspective. And that is a good and right thing. Jesus here asks us to walk into the minefield of our life of temptation and to pray, Lord, would you give me guidance so I don't blow my leg off? Would you help me not to step on the mind of temptation? It is a prayer to you men for you not to entertain temptation. It is a prayer for you women for you not to entertain temptation. Don't sit out coffee and tea for him. Don't just say, well, listen, I'm just gonna play with this a little bit. It's not gonna hurt me. Let's just have a little fun. Deliver us from temptation. That is not being hospitable to it. That is running from it as fast as you can. The Lord provides a way of escape for us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. When you are tempted, you're never tempted beyond what you can bear, but the Lord always provides a way of escape that you should run to it. Sometimes, sometimes we struggle with the question of, well, how can God lead us into temptation? Ever, ever struggled with that? I have. God doesn't lead you into temptation, I think. But it says, Lord, deliver us here from, lead us not into temptation. Actually, the way that it could also be translated is, Lord, let us not be led into temptation. A passive voice. Because James is very clear in James chapter 1 that the Lord does not tempt anyone. He doesn't lead you into temptation. When Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness, it was Satan who tempted him, not the Lord. The Lord doesn't te tempt anyone. But you will be fraught with temptations all of your life. And children, please hear me. As you grow up and as you learn more and more what it means to fight against sin, you have to recognize when temptation comes and that feeling like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Listen, that's not a good feeling. That's sinful. When you know that you're doing something against that which the Lord has told us we shouldn't do it. And you are walking across a mindful of temptation in your life. And all I'm asking, all the Lord asks of you is that you pray, Lord, would you please deliver us from that temptation? 
Would you please not lead us there? Would you help us, Lord Christ, to have eyes to see where obedience comes from and to obey you even when we feel like we don't have the strength? Martin Luther one time um, prayed, Lord, help me not to be led into temptation because I'm up to my eyeballs in sin. And there's an old medieval prayer that says, not only do we pray that we will not indeed be conquered, but let us not even come into the battle lest we be vanquished. The Lord, your God, provides for your present needs. And he wants you to pray for those. He provides for your past sins and all of your future ones. And he provides wisdom for the future. The old reformer, Martin Luther, used to say, we are simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously saints and sinners, such as we are. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was in the garden, rather, when he was in the desert, when he was tempted, notice that Jesus was tempted to the same clauses that we find in the Lord's Prayer. Satan said to Jesus, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus here says, disciples, as you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Satan said to Jesus, listen, call down angels from heaven. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here he asks us to pray, Lord, would you help us not be led into temptation? And Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And is it any coincidence that Jesus, when he teaches his disciples how to pray, he does so out of his own experience of knowing what it's like to be tempted? Here are all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. You can have them. And Jesus prays, asks his disciples to pray. When you pray, would you pray, my kingdom come? So friends, in the Lord's Prayer, it is a clarion call for us to be people who pray like we're not alone. To pray like we are part of a larger body of Christ together. And to ask for yourselves and for me and for every one of the people that are in this room and that are a member of our church. Would you pray, Lord, would you help us to be people who have eyes to see how we can provide daily bread? Would you help us to rest in our forgiveness in Jesus and to extend that same forgiveness to others? And would you, Lord, help us as we move into the future to have wisdom, to not step on the minds amidst the mind-filled of temptation? Lord, we do this together. Would you help us, Lord Christ? Friends, let's help one another do so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen? Amen. Father, would you help us in your Lord's prayer to help us to pray like we're not alone. And Lord, those of us who, are, uh, who feel isolated, who feel shamed, who feel like they've done things, frankly, that they can't be forgiven for, or that they're just scared to confess, Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move them into the joy of your love. Would you surround them with your embrace, and would you bring them now to your table in fellowship and in hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.